everyone. Welcome to another Crunch episode of the Mythos Manual. I'm your host, Leslie Wisniewski, and producer of this podcast. Joining me, as always, is the Game Master, Calder Kadavid. I'm living in your walls, keeping your buildings clean. Is that from something? It's from my adventure. There was the creature in the wall. Oh, the creature shit. in the wall is me. Oh. The way you said it, it felt like something more. It's from Wes Craven's The People in the under the stairs or whatever that movie was. Do you remember? No. no. What movie is this? I, I'm misquoting the title. It's about like a bunch of like weird ogre orphans living in this wall in like the. There's some. I, I, there was some sort of social messaging. It was a late '80s horror film. It's not important. <laughs> I just need to brush up on my late '80s horror films. It sounds like. I don't think you've ever seen a horror film. That's what I mean by brush up. Yeah, that would help. Start brushing is what I really mean. <laughs> uh, really exciting last couple episodes of the Mythos Manual. Uh, Zaram Nagam is free and roaming. He's a wild, a wild demon. He's his own demon now. It's it's Zaram Nagam's time. It's interesting because I feel like in another campaign, this would be something that our player characters would have prevented. Uh, but in this campaign, they brought it about. Yes, there is that, isn't there? It was it was interesting. There was it seemed like there was a discussion in the party of was this the right or good choice, uh, and I think it was really interesting. Christy talks about how being a, I think she, a neutral good character, she found a very specific justification for it in terms of like the greater good. What did you think about all of that in terms of like reasoning from your player characters? I think that's kind of what I was really expecting out of them. I, I set a lot of this campaign up to be about making those moral choices. That was kind of half the fun, I think, of this sort of like jungle pulp campaign. I wanted to also give them... Gray dilemmas. Gray dilemmas. Yeah, exactly. There's those big choices that you have to make between right and wrong, the paragon path and the evil path. and But like, you know, not really, because those are so binary and not fun. Like, I would rather, yeah. you know, things that are more like, oh, like there's some immediate choices to your... Uh, it's your actions. I think like we like we, you and I are like huge fans of like, Witcher Three. Like we love that. Oh yes, kind of really attractive about a lot of those like quests and a lot of those choices you make in Witcher Three is that the, they're the not si- abstract. The side quests specifically. Yeah, usually in the side quests, like, yeah. the, like the results are usually not abstract. Usually, you know, you make a choice and like it can, like, it's gonna benefit somebody and it's gonna hurt somebody else. Usually, yeah, it's hard to ever feel great about any choice you make. Uh, and like I think sometimes too much of that as a player when you're like i just want to win sometimes like you, you can definitely go too far with that sort of mechanic oh, certainly especially for a game like mythos manual eyes in the mist i wanted it to be about these uh kind of big choices and some kind of like darker themes by darker i just they kind of mean is like very vaguely horror themes i like to kind of like mess around with this in the sandbox definitely and i think also it's created a lot of really interesting inner party conflict and and things to figure out i was just talking with another person just this evening about how we've kind of been trained especially our specific generation to avoid conflict and we aren't really always ready to like get down and dirty with somebody when it comes to having a disagreement but it feels like your storytelling is really pushing your characters to those places where they have to really defend their points of view and their perspective. Well, let's kind of dig a little bit more into Zoram Nagam as a character. Um, did you ever anticipate using him so frequently to interact with the with the player characters as you have during this the course of this ep- this adventure? Uh, to a point, yeah. I think I, I always kind of conceived Zoram Nagam as being a, a pretty major character in the story so I, I knew he'd probably be popping up a lot if not more than 
he actually does. I guess what I'm really asking is how frequently did you anticipate having to do that very intense voice? Oh, um, <laughs> I think I just like kind of settled into it and really liked it. Really? And then once I committed to it, I didn't feel like I could walk it back because it's like, because it, it could definitely dug at my throat after doing it for a while. Yeah. But sometimes that's just how you do some voices. Like they, if you, if you, if you like to do voices, which not every GM likes to do a voice, but I'm a voice guy. After I think after a long time, I went from being like a moderate inflection to full on voices. Got it. You went from like a Tyrion Lannister performance to like a full on like. Affect. I don't know. Well, maybe like yes and no. I feel like like my voice work isn't like super good. Like I do okay. I have like I have like four voices. I think. Yeah. What are your What's your voice? Range? My voices. There's like my normal voice. This one. Like my normal just speaking voice, and like that suffices for a lot of characters. I feel like I feel like some characters just get like it's just me, and I'm <laughs> maybe I'm talking a little high, maybe I'm talking a little low. But it's just me. Okay, that's one. And then like there's I think like my girl voice, which okay. every girl gets, because like I can only do the four voices. Let me let me and hear. And it's just it's just back it's just in the back of the throat. It's like, oh, oh hello. I'm just I'm just a comely lass. A comely lass? A com- a, a, a handsome lass <laughs> out here by this well. Who will save me? Okay. So kind of like woo. Woo. Alright. Uh, that's my girl voice, that's obviously. Two. Like like all women sound. <laughs> Oh, yeah, consistently. Yeah. All of them sound that way. Then there's my old man voice, where it's more like this. Oh, hey, you old man. Like, Suresh actually gets this voice. Suresh gets the old man voice, but I I just do it a little differently. Do you have any, like, methods for getting into, like, your character voices? Or do you you feel like you just kind of pivot? I'm just an incredible actor (laughs) who can act super good. Okay, so that's... (laughs) That's three voices, right? What's your last one? My la- my last one's my Zoranda Gom voice. <laughs> I've heard you do a goblin voice before. I don't have a goblin voice. Well, but going back to kind of Zoranda Gom and his emergence, I think it's really interesting in these past two episodes, we had one where Zoranda Gom was kind of unleashed into the jungle. And then we ended up finding out all this stuff about his origin, essentially, and the, the journey of the, the priest who was the first soul who seeded him coming into being i thought that was really interesting do you feel like the player characters would have made the choices that they did if they had done the hall of hostility earlier and hadn't been such mamby pambies maybe who knows <laughs> uh the funny thing about the halls is is that i didn't write them really until like they went into them i made it sound like i did but i didn't oh so it really just really served as kind of just they were whatever I needed them to be at the moment we did them. <laughs> what? Really? Yep, the entire time. Like, there was no real plan for any of them. Like, there were maybe vague notions. I Okay, I had about a paragraph of, like, what was in each hall before they went in. And I knew that I wanted each of them to be five-room dungeons. Mm-hmm. Which we've talked about which before. Which we've talked about before, which is, uh, they're just small dungeons. Like, they right. don't take any time to write. Right. So, no, most of the dungeons, like, most of those I, I made up pretty quickly pretty shortly before they went into them. So you really just saw this as an opportunity to give some final exposition and and perspective on the the history of Poema. Yeah, like, had they gone into the Hall of Hostility first, like, which they totally could have done, it would have been, I could have, I can guarantee you, they would not have gotten the same kind of information. I probably would have, like, I, some of this would have been there. Like, I know I had some of this already in my notes, but, like, I remember being, like, I really want to, like, play up this, like, Zoranagam bit and, like, now that they just freed him, like, let's 
tie this even further in. I, I think I added the journal thing and wanted to really make it clear to the players, like, oh, like, here's some fun history. Like, you wouldn't get this otherwise. Let's connect a bunch of these dots together. I think it's interesting, too. We talk about tabletop RPG and RPG in general as uh, games of choice and decision-making and trying to create an atmosphere where players really feel like their choices impact the story. And I think you've really actively tried to do that for Mythos Manual. That being said, this doling out information in this particular fashion feels like you're giving the illusion of choice. I think Christy has a moment where she's like, oh, if we had dug this temple up, we would have had so much more context. And I think Paul said, maybe we wouldn't have done what we did. And it's like, well, but we did. But and I think that, it's interesting because it almost gives kind of a, a retroactive illusion of choice. Is, is that something that you that you thought about at all? I think it's okay to give them a fake illusion of choice so long as they don't know it's fake. If it, they don't know it's fake, then it's real. That's fair. It's all fake, right? Like this entire experience <laughs> true. Yeah. is fake. Like who's to say if I am winging something or if I prepped it? Like, what difference does it really make? Especially as a GM, I can change anything at any time. That's true. It's really right? more about the experience that your players are having. Right. As long as my world, I think the most important thing is that my world is consistent as possible for them. Right. Right. It doesn't matter if I'm putting the tracks down right in front of them or if I have them planned out for miles. And like, I've run games both ways. And I really wanted this game to be a compromise with my with my two kind of different styles where I over prep or... Well, I've never really actually done like a very little prep game. And I really wanted to do that in this one. I didn't, I want, I, in college, I was kind of more like that. I was like, mm-hmm. not, I didn't have as much time. So I would right. very much, you know, Wing it. throw together a game the day before maybe. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I got really, then I became like, I want to get really into GMing and be really good at it. And so like, I wanted, I made very big, elaborate set pieces and games and NPCs and dungeons. And I was very methodical in my designs that mm-hmm. way. And I, and I, there's an appeal to that, and like there's a big kind of like fun Skyriminess to like games I've run before. Oh, for sure. But they can also, I feel like, tangent to a degree, right? They can tangent to a degree. It's sometimes player agency can be too great or not like apparent when there's too much freedom, right? Mm-hmm. Like, what are the stakes of the world? It's it's a, it's a harder thing to kind of really control. The more freedom you give your players. Well, here's a question. Do you, throughout this process, obviously Mythos Manual is you trying to strike that compromise and also challenge yourself to be a little lighter on your feet in terms of flexibility and putting that track down right in front of your your player characters without, uh, I don't want to say damaging their experience, but like maybe making a less fulfilling experience for them. Do you feel like you, you have grown as someone who runs games from this experience? Yeah, I think I I would. Yes, I would say so. I think I've learned a couple things about this campaign. I really liked. I really liked the downtime parts of this campaign. Mm -hmm. I don't think I usually think of games in that sense. I usually think of games in my like in a lot of previous campaigns. It's just it's very action oriented. You always go straight from the next big action set piece to the next big action set. There's yeah. There's like there's there's not a lot of cutscenes. There's like or like the cutscene is like you go talk. Alan kind of talked about this a while back, right? Yeah. But it's like it's so very much like we talk to the NPC, we get the information, we get the quest. Maybe we have an interesting interaction or something. We get a clue. Who knows? We move on. But we move on. We go to the next big set piece, and and then there's a combat and or a dungeon or like a trap, whatever. And we just kind of wrap things up, and then we go. Maybe maybe we go back and get a reward or something. Yeah. Right? 
But I liked this. I liked this, like, um, this constant kind of movement of characters. It, it gave the game stakes that I think makes it a little unique to a lot of campaigns, at least I've been part of, where this, like, I think it's just so easy to give your players, like, a save the world, save the region. I even still do save the region, I guess. Yeah. But because it's easy and like it's harder, to, and but but not that they cared, <laughs> not that they care about saving the region. It doesn't. It seems like a very minor, like on the radar, right? Um, but it's those are really easy to kind of find motivation in, right? At least with this, I wanted to at least I wanted the characters to feel, and the players to feel like they wanted to save these people, yeah, and this group of people, yeah. It, the think, stakes are are smaller, but they're much more intimate. Right, like that's the thing is like I wanted them to actually care about like these individual NPCs and have like kind of different relationships with them, and I thought that would make it, some of the stakes just different, and it has definitely made them feel different. For sure, I like there's that there's that moment with um, Damius and Shayaka on top of the Ron's pyramid talking about that dark that inner darkness. Mm-hmm. And the the choice to to turn away from it, um, and like you hold, I think you said you hold hands and, and watch the sunrise, and, and like there was something I want I want to say cinematic about that moment in that it was a story beat that didn't feel contrived. It, it felt very cathartic and, and real for where we had where we had gotten. It felt very organic, um, right? And yeah. I and I think it made the the next. Well, I think it was like two combats later, that much more alarming whenever Damius took up a shackle and attacked Shayaka. Right, um, in the enchantment uh, yeah. the enchantment trap. Yeah, because he was under murderous command. Um, and he had that, oh, Alan, my hat is always off to Alan when he like chooses his moments to really double down on his character. Mm-hmm. When he says, not again. Right. Yeah, and I yeah. I remember hearing Christy gasp in that moment of like, <laughs> what? Little baby info drop. Um, and having him go after Shayaka. But I actually wanted to talk with you a little bit about um, enchantment effects in general. I feel like as a player, it's really hard whenever I'm under the effect of something like Murderous Command or something of that nature. Like, I know I'm supposed to attack my party, but like, do you, is, is the game kind of anticipating that we're going to go a little easier on our comrades or should we be going all out whenever you're under those kinds of effects? Well... I don't know. Okay, I, I I think it's always best at that point to make decisions that feel tactical, but they don't have to be your most tactical. As a GM, I don't I like so, I think sometimes I'm like, yeah, go for it. Like I need you to. I I have definitely been at points where I'm like, I don't think that's what your character would do. Like you were intentionally attacking someone on the uh, like on the other side of the room when someone else is right next to you. Right. No, we're not doing, like, no, no, no. I've definitely, yeah. I've definitely just, like, had to stop it and stop shenanigans. Right. But I also think, like, you know, you can be like, I turn off power attack. It's like, fine. You turn off power attack. Like. Yeah. You almost become your own GM in that weird moment. Right. Because it's not like you take over those, those uh, character sheets. Like. Right. We are still in control of our characters. They just aren't in control of themselves. Sure. Sure. Uh, I think, though, I, I'm certain there are GMs who probably just straight up take control of the characters, but I don't want to do that. That doesn't seem, that doesn't seem right. It's definitely more work for you. It's definitely more work, right? <laughs> You're already running a majority of the characters on the battlefield, yeah. I assume, at any given moment. Uh, right? Let's, let's, let's just add more. I just want to play all of the characters. I don't <laughs> even need players. Just, just leave. See, <laughs> just leave. Let me play my war game <laughs> by myself. 
It's really fun. <laughs> so fun. Everything goes according to plan. Um, well, I go, going back, I guess, to, to talking about Damius giving that little kind of character backstory drop during that enchantment moment. Um, let's talk a little bit about info dumps because we also had that big kind of informational drop uh, from the the journal of the priest within the hall of hostility. I would love to kind of explore like what are the different ways that you try to dole out information to your characters. I think we've seen a bunch of different ways even in this campaign, right? Mm-hmm. We've had uh, that diary. We've had um, oh, that's a good one. Diaries and journals are good. Diaries and journals always good. We've had dreams, I think, to yeah, really delve that's, into you know, that's exposition. Exciting. Like you know, info dumps you can you can touch. Oh, or for talk sure, to, you know. for sure. Um, visions, haunts. Uh, yeah, there's been a Ghosts. lot. Of, yeah, there's been a lot of different ways that communing with spirits, even like ref, like reaching back out to um, Eulister Burn Book to kind of gather information to a degree as well what are some of your favorite ways to provide information to your player characters in a fun and engaging way so they remember it right because like that's the goal is for them to remember it six weeks from now players don't remember anything so you really have to be you have to be striking with how you tell them things definitely uh dreams are a good one like try to you can't overuse dreams because then they'll be boring but (laughs) dreams are cool i like i like dreams people and like players always love like getting dreams if that makes sense like if yeah you're, if you're a player in a game and all of a sudden like you go to sleep you have a dream and <gasps> people, yeah, people get something really fucking jazzed when like because people like that kind of special attention mm-hmm. and dreams have this kind of like sense of feeling tailored yeah for right? sure because they kind of i mean they are to an extent uh i've noticed something really interesting that you've done specifically in our off-air uh, campaign where every once in a while you'll kind of have cold opens that feature specific characters and it's not necessarily like you engaging with a player character but it's you revealing a backstory or an important fact or something that maybe that character wasn't 100 percent aware of in kind of an interesting and dynamic storytelling way yeah that's fun i i, I stole that from podcasting though like, really like a lot of a lot of like online a lot of you know like live play podcasts do that because it works well as a radio bit Oh, right? for sure. Everything at the table when we're playing is part of the game, mm-hmm. right? And so it's all part of shaping this narrative experience. And if there's no rule saying you can't inject more of the narrative experience with like these like with a lo- with a scene that is just a kind of like a piece of narrative moment that just exists apart from like the interactive element of the game. Oh, for sure. And I think also moments like that can happen in NPC interaction, like when Ruth or Suresh are talking about like their memories or experiences in the jungle those almost feel like flashbacks or cutscenes to a degree because we are hearing now from such a specific point of view yeah yeah there's also like there's f- some fun spells like again alan in curse the crimson throne really likes the acacia communion spell which lets him ask some questions to the great record book of the acacia plane or whatever but Basically, he gets a vision. He gets, like, free visions. And, like, we've had a lot of fun, though, playing with that, with those visions. You know, spell out some, like, interesting information. Because, like, Pathfinder Adventure Paths are loaded with, like, so much GM backstory that you almost never get any real way to tell the players. It's, like, so obscure. It's, like, why would they ever think to ask these questions about these people? Like, But it's still interesting. And it's, like, interesting. Uh, and it helps flavor out the world. So when... Alan asks, or like when you, as a GM, if you can give that information, like there's just so much of it, like it's just fun to like really help flesh out the world. And the more you can flesh out the world and engage the players and like to making it all seem like a cohesive world that you're part of and like that they have an impact in it and that 
their characters are consistently interacting with it, I think there's like a sense of uh, a sense of ownership to that. And I think people like feel a bond with each other and with the world that they're like playing in. Definitely, and I think that degree of specificity too is so is so wonderful. Um, even the sewer brewer talking about um, your goofy voices. I remember when you introduced the sewer brewer. One of the questions that one of the players asked was, "Did you make that up? Like, does it say the sewer brewer in the book?" And you're like, "Yeah, it's in the book." Yeah, I didn't like, make the sewer brewer. I mean, because sometimes I add stuff to a pre-written campaign. Like a good GM does adds, you know, a couple characters, a little, some, uh, some little special allspice to the mix. Yeah, a little, you know, you add your flourishes, change things when you want to change them. But no, the sewer brewer was right out of the book. He just felt like a very random little little PC there, a little NPC. But he's actually a... Uh, Don't spoil him. I'm not going to tell you, but he's, he's just bad. He's a bad little guy. But he loves pickles. He does love pickles because he is a goblin. I don't know. I think that's charming. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's also especially interesting. And as a player, something that I so appreciate is maybe... You you don't specifically earn the extra information or info dump, but like your GM kind of gives it to you to a degree anyways. I think whenever uh, Damius and Shayaka were on the Bronze Pyramid, there was a perception check for Damius to make to hear something, and he didn't he didn't make the pa- he didn't make the uh, the check, but Shayaka did. So you're able to still pass on the information to Damius from an NPC, so he could know that there was chanting going on in the Low City, and the Charaka were really excited about something nebulous that was happening out in the jungle um when do you make the call between like this information is so vital i have to get it to my players versus like well they didn't make the check so they just don't get it Mm. i think you always want to give them something right that's the check i don't like i think that there's an older mindset in gming and some adventure running where if you fail a check that then it just doesn't happen then it's like it's a it's a binary either it happens or it doesn't and it doesn't have to be that way um i think a lot of more modern games a little bit more narrative based you can take pages out of those it's not about getting a success it can be about it's about it's not it's not about making the check all the time it's about where what kind of check did you make did you get really high did you get really low did you score somewhere in the middle maybe mm-hmm. and that'll and that'll affect what kind of information you get maybe maybe had alan actually like got a decent like was it a perception or something I'm yeah certain. it was like, perception i bet if he had gotten a good one maybe he would have actually gotten like more information right right i gave him like a bit of like flavor like that's just kind of like that's fun right like oh you know the, the jungle's quiet but like even though it's miles away even though there's a thick jungle you he- it's like this chanting or like this like this rhythm is pounding from like this the growing darkness out in the jungle mm-hmm. and like that just helps build like the world and the, the tension but if you'd gotten a better check maybe i would have actually given him something useful mm. or something like you know something more specific something more specific something he can act on versus just something like here's some information that's good flavor and maybe hints to something yeah there's the allusion to as opposed to like the promise of yeah um, I thought it was also really lovely. I don't I don't know if this like meant something, but those blood red orchids blooming in the morning. What was no. that? What was that about? Was that just you a bullshit flavor or Not just bullshit flavor? Oh. But, like, but like good stuff. Like also I think it's me being like, you know what? It's called Orchid Valley and I've never mentioned the orchids. I haven't orchids. shown them any orchids. The whole point was yeah, like it's like, oh, it's called Orchid Valley because it's full of beautiful orchids and they get there and I do not make any mention of orchids the entire time. Except 
when blood is spilled and they bloom. Now they're all in bloom. You guys came during the non the orchids off season. You see, <laughs> you need to come during the orchid bloom season. It's very pretty during orchid bloom season. But you have to reserve stuff like months in advance. It, it fills up. It fills right up. Um, but um, <laughs> I was looking. I think for a for an interesting effect to have taken place. Something something that feels small but interesting. Mm-hmm. And like I think you know blood red flowers after some sort of like. Blood has been spilled this night, yeah. sort of. I mean, there was already like the blood red moon, the orc, the blood red orchids, like a lot of blood, a lot of blood, a lot of blood. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh! I'm an evil monkey. <laughs> well, so here's a question: We talked a couple crunches ago about how you wanted to take Olatika out of the picture, right? I feel like that. These couple episodes really prove that to be a good move uh, because Alan and Christy and Paul were all talking at one point in these episodes about we thought we ha- we could restore balance to the jungle with Olatika, but Olatika isn't here. So really, this is our only path forward at this point, because um, I feel like if they hadn't had that rele- revelation about Olatika, if you hadn't. Oh, uh, they'd in- have totally gone to find him. Yeah. 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 And, and then. It would have been boring. Or, or maybe I would have changed my mind and maybe Olatika is alive or something. But I don't know. Probably not. Yeah. Because I think having Olatika show up as an adversary, as he did in that moment, was such a rug out from under you kind of a moment. Um, the belief that there was this benevolent force in the jungle for good. And it's already like that, that piece is already off the board. Mm-hmm. The hags have seen to it. Though it was really cathartic to have Mathilde trying to do like a a bad guy moment with her ooze, and then something happened. Right? Oh, what happened to Sugarglade? Oh no! I can't wait to find out. It's gonna be really fucked up. Is it? It's gonna be super fucked up. I, I feel know. like you're just saying things. This campaign just could have gone so many different ways, and so it's interesting to me to see like, oh, I guess like. Now, in the, according to the way the story has unfolded, Sugar Glade's been attacked by a very powerful magical force commanding an army of Charuka. I don't know how well the hags of Sugar Glade would be prepared for that. Could handle something like that. Yeah, it is a completely worthy question. And now the party has sort of raised the query of like, should we even stay here? Should we leave? Like sometimes they say things like that. I'm like, I don't know if you realize the situation. Mm-hmm. It's not like we, you know, remember remember the journey getting here. Remember how hard that was. Kind that was. Remember the river and the snake moving, and the snake and the ghouls. Like, Eulister died. Right, and like like it's like they like I don't want them to get in their heads that they can just like pack up and leave easily. Like I, I like I want to just not dissuade them from leaving because I think there's also like a narrative version of the story where like. It ends with them fleeing the jungle with like an army of Charoka snapping at their heels the whole time. Could also be a really cool adventure. Like that could. There's definitely something to that. I would be. I'd be interested to see if that could actually go that way. Mm-hmm. But I, I do think it kind of raises the question of responsibility. Right. I guess it does raise the question of responsibility, and I think it also begs to question some alignment things, especially from like Kata. Who I feel like she's 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 good. Like that's the thing. It's like like the other two are good, right? right? And the other two are just are neutrals. And I think they play that pretty well. But Kate, I think sometimes I like I need to I need to like tug on Chrissy's ear to be like, if your character is good, unless we want to change your alignment, like you need to like kind of buck up and act like it a little bit. Which is 
I think she does for the most part, but I can't. Yeah, it, she she was definitely against like l- just leaving the um, the laborers to kind of toil and die. Right. Yeah. Like uh, I think she's usually the most compassionate of the bunch. Yeah. Um, but I just need her to not need her, but I think like the I will have to raise questions depending on like what what happened, what sh- choices sh- that character could end up making. Mm-hmm. I think another big thing to remember also is the laborers who are now severely injured. Oh, that's I. There, How was, much, there was the mention of like, I think someone broke her ankle. Raleigh, Raleigh broke her ankle. Yeah. Other people are so exhausted to the point that how can they even leave? How can they move? Yeah. And so I think there there's going to be a lot of accounting for the this, log- the logistics of their situation. Right. Like they are in a bad way. Like so there has to be. Like I need them. Like it's hard to envision everything that's happening at once, right? There's yeah. so much happening. So it's like yeah. I need to. I'll need to, as a GM, I think, kind of step in and remind them, let's not forget, here's All this, these other things. All these other factors. Like, that, like you, just picking up and leaving is going to be harder than just picking up and leaving. Yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah, for sure. I think that's, to a degree, uh, video game mentality a little bit. How so? I think oftentimes in a video game, it's so easy to leave an area. Uh, a little bit, yeah. You go to the wide map, you fa- you fast travel, or you like s- just sprint away from something because you're only really worried about yourself as opposed to like in this particular campaign, there are NPCs that are actively relying on the PC characters uh, in a way that the responsibility for their well-being does really rest on their shoulders. Yeah, I mean... They're yeah. not. They're not just abstract villagers. I guess is what I'm saying. Right. Like. Well. Like. It, it, yes. As much as they can be. Yeah. As much as they can be. As much as they can be the cast of friends. Yeah. They're also like at this point, people as opposed to. They have names and hopes and dreams. Yeah. As opposed to non-player characters, mm-hmm. right? It's not just like, oh well, shrug, right? right. It, it it can't be that anymore at this point. Right. Well, at least I hope so. Yeah. Otherwise, I feel like. That then that would be the question of like how effective were the mechanics of right that bonding system? Yeah, how effective was any of it if they, if they don't care if anyone dies? Yeah, right. Then I would have failed as a GM, or found a new area in which to grow. There you go. Well, on that note, I am so intrigued to see what happens next. There's a lot of power players out in the jungle. We're kind of flying blind right now because we don't really know what's happened throughout the night and. Going into this new morning, a new day, I'm really curious to see the choices that our players make and what you have up your sleeves, whether you've prepared it or not. Uh. Uh, Well, we will see you all next time here on the Crunch episode of the Mythos Manual. Please don't forget to like, subscribe, rate our podcast. We love hearing from you. Please feel free to reach out to us on our social medias at Mythos Manual. Check out our website at mythosmanual.com. And as always, have a fantastic couple weeks. We'll see you next time. Have a nice day, everybody. See you later.